Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. So the president basically signaled to a bunch of racist ruffians, stand by, I may need to activate you because there's some stuff going on out there related to this election and nobody knows exactly what he means or how far he's going to go. That happened on national television last night. That's Errol Lewis. He's an anchor at New York One, where he's hosted the nightly primetime show Inside City Hall for the last decade. It focuses on New York City news, politics, and culture. Throughout his career, Errol has moderated dozens of political debates and is one of the most influential voices in New York City politics. He joins me today to reflect on the first presidential debate, if we can even call it that. We talk about the candidates' performances, their strategy, and the craft of moderating. Plus, we talk about the current quality of life in New York City and the curious politics of its mayor, Bill de Blasio. That's coming up. Stay tuned. My guest this week is Errol Lewis. He's a political news anchor at New York One and has been one of the go-to voices in New York City and national politics for over a decade. Today, Errol joins me to break down what happened during the first presidential debate between Trump and Biden. Errol is an experienced debate moderator, so let's turn to his analysis. Errol Lewis, welcome to the show. Glad to be with you, Preet. It's long overdue. I've watched you for a long time. I have appeared on on your show, and we've done conferences together as recently as last week. So it's a real privilege and a treat to have you, sir. Thanks for coming. Absolutely. Love, love to be with you. So we are recording this on Wednesday morning, the last day of September. Much of America probably waking up from a hangover that was caused not so much by the um, imbibing of alcohol as from that so-called presidential debate we had last night. And I want to I spend some time getting your reaction. Dana Bash, who we both know uh, from CNN, even though it was uh, cable television and not that late at night, her reaction was... I'm just going to say it like it is. That was a shit show. Mm. Do you agree with that? Uh, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> um, uh, well, well, yes, yes, of course. <laughs> you don't I, have I, to I, adopt the language, Errol. Well, no, 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 no. You're no. very innocent. <laughs> what, what I was thinking was that um, I worked with her. The only presidential debate I ever got a chance to be a part of was in April of 2016 when I was one of the questioners uh, for the final primary debate between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. And she right. was one of the other questioners. So I actually got to work with her for a few weeks. And that night was a big, big deal. And we got to talk a lot. And I was a little surprised because, you know, that was said advisedly. She's not somebody who just kind of flies off the handle. I've worked with her. I've seen her under pressure. Yeah. So so she was, well, was I think it, she was being was analytical. Well, she was being analytical and precise. Yes, it was a shit show. <laughs> analytical and precise. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it, it, it was. I mean, no nobody involved in television on any level, even if it's the Presidential Debate Commission that does this once every four years, nobody could have thought that that was good television. It was, I know I know from the viewer's point of view, it was hard to watch. You know, being a media professional, I, I you know, I mean, I've seen good television, I've seen bad television, it doesn't matter, it's my job, I gotta watch it, you know? But um, I could I could certainly tell that for, uh, innocent viewers who were out there just trying to get a little information about the government. Uh, it was probably very, very hard to watch. So my question is, was Donald Trump being intentional and strategic? You say you've seen good television, bad television. Whatever else you say about Donald Trump, his policies, his ethics, his veracity, you know, the guy became president because he knew something about good television. So how do you reconcile those things? Oh, well, I mean, he was stopping good television from happening. The best moments in that debate went to Joe Biden when he looked directly in the camera. And sometimes he held out his hands, you know, in like an open appeal saying, all of you at home, how are you doing with your, you know, your family, your health? 
uh, your jobs. Look, you folks at home, how many of you get up this morning and had an empty chair at the kitchen table because someone died of COVID? How many of you were in a situation where you lost your mom or dad and you couldn't even speak to them? You had a nurse holding a phone up so you could, in fact, say goodbye. You would have lost far how many That's a great way of using the medium. Donald Trump fully understood that, probably more than most of us. And then he just immediately tried to do the equivalent of what basketball players do when somebody's coming down the lane about to do an easy layup. He, he tried to foul him. You know, it's like what you see in hockey, right? I mean, somebody's getting ready to get near the goal. You just stop that guy and it, and it never looks pretty. Uh, but I think that's what Donald Trump was trying to do, that if, you know, he'd rather have a bad, awful, disrupted, uh, derailed debate than a good debate where the other side is is scoring points. That's interesting. So he was trying to prevent, so his knowledge of television, his expertise in television taught him in this circumstance to prevent good television for Biden, even if it meant not great television for himself, because that was his only move. Exactly right. I mean, this is this is the person who sees the maneuvering four or five uh, chess moves ahead and says, oh, crap, here comes checkmate. I better just knock the table over, which is pretty much what we saw last night. Well, how come he didn't do that with Clinton? I thought that was a much more watchable series of debates in 2016. Well, you know, he was he was kind of riding high and he was doing all kinds of things. Remember the town hall format when he just like stood behind her and was like looming over her, invaded <laughs> her personal kind of space? St stalkerish. I mean, it was crazy, but it 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 did what his audience wanted him to do. Uh, and, you know, in the, the name of the game in that particular race, for better or worse, for a lot of different reasons we could get into, uh, was disrespecting Hillary Clinton was the path to victory, right, for for a lot of people. You know, it certainly helped Bernie Sanders in the primary season. It helped, it has made the career of, I don't know how many, you know, countless radio show hosts and, and pundits. And, and Donald Trump rode that same wave. After 20 years of demonizing Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, it became an industry. You could sell a book, you could sell a magazine article, you could sell an appearance on television, uh, you could build a political campaign out of simply disrespecting her. And so that's just what he did. It, it, it didn't hurt him one bit uh, politically, unfortunately. So when people keep saying it was difficult to watch, in that brief statement, no one is taking sort of a particular position on, I guess, the three figures who were involved in the debate. There's Biden, there's Trump, and there's also Chris Wallace. When you make that statement, where do you lay the blame mostly? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I would say much of the blame that's going to attach to Chris Wallace actually belongs with the sponsors of the debate. And of course, he's there as the visual face of the debate sponsors, but he didn't really have the level of control that would have been required uh, to put things in check if that's what he wanted to do. So I, I say it this way. I've I've moderated over 100 debates. I've done a ton of debates for, you know, U.S. Senate, for uh, I told you about the one presidential one. I've done state attorney general and I've done every mayoral debate since 2005 in one capacity or another. And the key thing in all of it is you've got to keep control. And by, and by that, I mean, you have to have full control up to and including cutting off microphones. You have to be able to make a credible threat to people. I will stop this debate. I have the power to stop this debate if you don't follow the rules. Chris Wallace didn't really have that kind of power because the rules were set by the Presidential Debate Commission. It was not a Fox News debate. Uh, he didn't have any producers in his ear uh, so that, you know, there was nobody for him. Like what I've done. I've actually done this. I did this in uh, 2017 in the uh, mayoral debates. The, uh, the you know, one of the candidates was acting out, uh, Bo Deedle, and I threatened him. You know, and I had planned this out with our folks. I said, "Look, you guys, you know, are you going to back me up if I have to, you know, go to the wall with these guys?" And they assured me that they would. And I told him, "It's like, look, if you keep interrupting, I'm going to cut your mic off." And he kept yelling and shouting and interrupting. And I, I told him to cut off his mic. And then did he turn to you and say, Reagan style? I am paying for this microphone, Mr. Uh, <laughs> actually, what he did, was, which is even worse, was he, he yelled so loud the other mics picked it up, you know? <laughs> so so, some people don't need a mic. That's, that's uh, no, but but, but here's, here's an example of how far you have to go with control. In that same debate, and I became sort of a minor legend in local political circles for this, I actually ejected somebody from the audience because the audience was getting rowdy. And they were screaming and yelling and stuff. And, and I again, I had I had cleared this with my folks in advance. I said, look, are you guys going to actually help me out here if I have to throw somebody out? And they said, sure, we'll have security throw the guy out. And that's just what we did. 
Errol, can I can I make a comment? Yes. I think you're thirsty for power. <laughs> I think I think this is going to your head a little bit. You're cutting well, off mics. You're th- no, like you're, you're no, bouncing no, people out no, of the theater. No. I mean, look, it's like here's 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 the exact equivalent. If somebody came along while we're talking and you know uh, you know kicked your producers out of the room and said, you know what, we're going to take over this podcast. We're going to start inserting commercials that you haven't approved. We're going to start, uh, you know, raising and lowering mic levels. We're, we're going to start introducing new guests that you never asked for. You would say, before I let any of that stuff happen, I will just end the podcast. You know, we're going to just end it right here and now. And that's the exact equivalent. I mean, what I tell my students in journalism class, I said, look, the only thing you're there for if you're the moderator is to control the flow of the conversation. And if you can't control the flow of the conversation, you might as well just get up and leave and just let any random person off the street come in and take over your debate. And like, you, you just you just can't let that happen. And now, I mean, now for me, you know, you talk about power hungry, among other things, when I'm doing debates for New York One, it's my show, you know what I mean? So it's kind of like, you're coming to take my show away from me, some guy off the street, I don't think so. You're the captain now. Yeah, yeah. So on this question of the mics, because I find that interesting because some people were suggesting exactly that last night. And you said you had that power in the debate with Bo Deedle. Do you always insist on having that? Did you have that power of, of mic uh, cancellation in the debate between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton? Or do you insist upon it or ask for it when you think it's going to be a problem and you've anticipated it? There, there is some planning. And I, I have, uh, for, first of all, in the CNN debate, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't my shop. I was there kind of as a guest. But, um, but it did come up. I mean, these things do come up. And one of the things when you're gaming out what is likely to happen, which you have to do for your rehearsal purposes, like how long, you know, technical stuff like how long will it take and what's the proper wording of a question and which question should we ask and in what order. But then along with that, you have issues, especially in New York politics with, is there going to be any disruption? You know, is, are there going to be protesters there? Right, right, right. Is, is, is you know, are there going to be, uh, you know, slanderous accusations hurled from the podium? And if so, how do we handle that? And, you know, to the extent that you want to plan this all out and make sure it doesn't, you know, run away and run out of control, different questions do come up so that, you know, if such and such happens, then what? If this, then that. In the case of Bo Deedle, we knew that he was enough of a loose cannon that, frankly, we had an internal discussion about whether he should even be part of the debate. I lost that argument. That's the only reason he was in the room. Uh, and then the, the additional question was, what if he just acts completely disruptive? And that's when we introduced the question of like, look, can I, you know, I have to be able to tell them that we're going to stop the debate or else other people will either take control of the debate or in fact, stop the debate. We can't let this stuff go out over our air. In the case of last night, I don't know how much control Chris Wallace had, but I know because they said this, um, there were no producers talking in his ear, feeding him questions or sort of steering him towards an exit. If there was a real problem, he had to kind of make it up as he went along. Um, You know, the one thing I will say is he needed to, if he was going to take any strong action at all, he needed to do it on the very first interruption. You know, it's like, uh, you know, I don't know, like the old movies, if you're, you know, in a prison yard for the first time, right? The first person who comes up to you, you've got to take that guy down, right? (laughs) Because uh, uh, everybody else is watching and they're going to see, you know, what is and isn't going to be permissible. And, you know, for him to, for Chris Wallace to finally raise his voice, I think about an hour into the debate, it's like, well, dude, you should have done that the very first time. You should have stopped the debate. I've done that. You know, you just stop the debate. Just say, and and you tell everybody, it's like, like, everybody stop. We're going to stop the debate right here. We need to have a little check-in. You know, how do you want to do this? Are you going to follow the rules that you agreed to or are you not? Because if you're not, then we really don't have the debate that we had all agreed to have. Do debate moderators ever pack a tranquilizer gun? <laughs> I'm you just, know, it's not a bad idea. <laughs> I'm just, I think a taser probably maybe is too much. And well, too well, well, no, no, no. The next step would be to say, like, here's a video of your loved one in the next room, right? <laughs> <laughs> be, be a shame if something happened to them. <laughs> yeah, it's up, it's up to you, Mr. President. We've got Melania in the next room. We're, this is just jokes, guys. Errol, Errol is just joking. And- and as we discussed, is power hungry. Um, so <laughs> Control is kind hungry. Of- it's not the same thing. Control. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. 
Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. So Chris Wallace, generally speaking, I think is an excellent journalist. And I think coming into this debate was kind of hailed as one of the better, if not one of the best debate moderators. I don't want to, you know, harp on him too much because I want to talk about the candidates and the substance. How did he how did he screw it up? Well, I mean, again, you know, you agree to these rules. And it's like, but it's beyond the rules, right? Isn't it something? You know? No, look, it's like it's like if you if you put on a blue uniform that says NYPD, and you start walking around, you know, tapping your billy club on the street, but you're actually not a cop, you have exposed yourself to some really funky situations, and that's pretty much what he did. I mean, we look at the guy and we say, "This is Chris Wallace, the esteemed, award-winning journalist, who's the son of a legendary journalist." who has done this stuff for years and who only a few days ago faced down the president and basically called him a liar to his face sitting there at the White House. You know, this is the, this guy's got some grit. You know, he's got some steel he's not, and, he's, and, he's, and he's smart and he's on the issues and he's not afraid, you know, and he's got a powerful news organization that'll back him up. He's got everything you need to do the, the moderator's job that we think he was doing. But again, these presidential debates, they want to, and he'd said, uh, I think, Frank Farenkopf had said it on television, too, that they wanted him to be invisible, that they just wanted magically for some great conversation to happen between these two candidates as if it was, <laughs> you know, France yeah. or something, right, where they sit and just talk without a moderator for two hours, right? Yeah, I joked on Twitter last night, you know, I love that they have returned to the Lincoln-Douglas debate format. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> minus Lincoln and Douglas. Right? <laughs> and debate. And, <laughs> right. and, and actually, and format. <laughs> yeah, well, it, well, exactly, exactly. I'll tell you, there was one, and it only lasted about five minutes, and it's fleeting, but I, you know, you can find it online, so I want to tell your listeners about it. In the primary debate in 2013 between uh, Scott Stringer and Elliot Spitzer, Elliot Spitzer decided to make a comeback. He had resigned in, you know, in disgrace uh, as governor, but was making a comeback. Uh, and so this is the Democratic primary for New York City controller. I was moderating the debate along with uh, Brian Lehrer, who's a great guy from public radio. And, you know, we, we gamed it out. We timed it out. We, you know, we had all our questions. And about, I don't know, maybe eight minutes into the debate, they really started going at it. It got personal. They brought up ethics. They were really, really going at it. And we, Brian and I, we did something you normally wouldn't do. Having said all of the stuff about control, 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 we just sat back and ignored the format and just let them trade basically body blows. One would speak, you did this, you did that. That's not true. You're a liar. Bam. Then the other would answer. Oh, on the, on the contrary, you did this, you did that. How dare you question my ethics? There's more to this story. Bam. And then and they and they just traded back and forth. And it just emotionally and substantively, it just seemed like the right thing to do, to like let them go at it. And in fact, what happened was they got out a lot of that bad energy. They said the things that were were making both of them crazy about the other. And then we settled in and we did the rest of the debate and it worked out fine. But that's but that's so that's so rare. That's so, so rare. And it's I so guess it rare. has to be in the moment because I'm, I'm wondering why. And maybe this it happened. Did people afterwards suggest that you and, and Brian Lehrer abdicated and lost control or not? No, no, it never came to that because, you know, we would have if it had gone on too long, we would have had to, to intervene. But it was substantive and it was it was real. It was real. I mean, because, look, all of the rules are just a framework. I mean, one, you know, the other way you can screw up a debate, which some people do, is the minute they go over, you know, some arbitrary requirement. Like if you'd said, you know, like last night, they said you get two uninterrupted minutes. If the moderator starts jumping in at two minutes and five seconds while the person is mid-sentence, that's just dumb. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a framework to enable a good conversation to happen. If the good conversation actually happens, 
you thank your lucky stars and you let it happen. But uh, a, a lot of moderators don't think of it that way. And that's when things kind of go wrong. So I want to talk about the position of Joe Biden and all this. We talked about Trump. We talked about Chris Wallace. Now, you're Joe Biden and you have your talking points and you understand you can look directly in the camera and you can talk about empathy and you can talk about the pandemic. And there's some powerful moments when he talked about how his son had an addiction to drugs. Gets kind of lost in all the discussion afterwards. My son, like a lot of people, like a lot of people we know at home, had a drug problem. He's overtaken it. He's, he's, he's fixed it. He's worked on it. And I'm proud of him. But why I'm was proud he of my son. When Trump starts interrupting you and Chris Wallace is not gaining control, is there something else that Biden should have done? No, I think, I think he did it right. I think he did it exactly right. I mean, he probably let more of the bad behavior go by than you or I would have, but that's why we're not going to be president of the United States. Uh, what, he, what he did do, though, from time to time was throw in some zingers that we all remember the next day. I mean, look, the bottom line is, and nobody else, there's very few people in the world who can say this, he called the president to his face a racist, a clown. Fi- Wait a minute, you get the final word, Mr. Well, it's hard to get any word in with this clown. You know, I mean- He told him you, to shut up? He told him to shut up. Why would you answer that because question? Because the you question is- You want to put a is, lot of the new Supreme is, Court justices, the radical question, left. Will you shut up, on, man? Listen, who is on your list, Joe? But was that smart? Did that, was, that a, was that a good thing to do? Well, or he had, good he to, had to do it. To he do a few of those? Or was, did he sink to Trump's level? No, no, I don't think he sank. He, he didn't sink to Trump's level or else he would have been doing it constantly. And by by dropping it here and there, he let it be known, to me at least, he let it be known. It's like, OK, at least he's not going to be a doormat, you know, because nobody wants that. And if he'd let the president go, you know, go berserk with all of his antics, it would have started to raise questions about, well, wait a minute, can this guy take on, you know, the Russians or the Chinese dictator if, if he can't even take on this guy across the stage? So what about the laughing? What about the, the I, shots see, I thought he should have done. More, I thought he should have done more of that. I thought he should have done more of that. I, I'm thinking back to uh, 2012, the vice presidential debate. He all he did basically was laugh at Paul Ryan, you know, and he was he seemed genuinely amused. He, he was very know? effective in the debate against Paul Ryan. And yeah, I was yeah, reminding was people the, of that. It was the first time he trotted out the word malarkey, I think, at, at least that I remember. <laughs> our adversaries are much more willing to test us. They're more brazen in their attacks and our allies are less willing to. With all due us. respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. And why fact, is that so? Because not a single thing he said is accurate. He's throwing these haymakers. He's sitting there. He's laughing at the kid. And, and, and it made Ryan visibly angry to be ridiculed. And we know from the emotional makeup of the commander in chief, it would have driven Trump absolutely nuts if he just laughed at him. You know, and, and, and I, I, I thought that there'd be a moment where Biden would try and do what Reagan did in 1980 against Jimmy Carter and say, there you go again. You know, which is all you need to like a, a mnemonic just to remind everybody, you know, as it turns out, what Biden said was, you know, everybody knows this guy lies all the time. It's a given. Was any mind in America changed by the debate? It would seem to me that one strategy for Trump and Biden, and especially for Trump, who's losing in most of the polls, including in battleground states, that he would want to get some people who are on the fence to come to his side. Did, did any mind changing happen last night? I think I think it did, but not in the sense that you or I would use the the phrase, you know, changing minds. I think, unfortunately, negative, ugly campaigning and negative, ugly debates are part of negative campaigning uh, have a, a, a suppressive effect. There's actually some political science literature on this that, you know, nasty negative campaigning is not intended to change minds, but intended to change minds in the sense that people decide not to vote at all. Turn people off. Yeah, just turn people off. It's a it's a rigged game. I hate these politicians. They you know they they behave worse than a, a kindergarten class, and I'm just not going to have anything to do with it. And that I think was a conscious strategy. You know, again going back to I'll, I'll flip the board over if it looks like you're moving toward checkmate. You know, we'll just end the game right here. Right, but who does that hurt more? Does that does that hurt Biden more in the estimation of Trump? I you know I think it's it's more like there's a there's a great phrase I think it was in the New York Times where they said Trump acted like somebody who wanted to pull the pin on the grenade, you know, sort of hoping that it would damage the other person more, you know? Uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, well, look, on, on the face of it, just to follow your, your, your line of, of, of questioning, I think you're exactly right. Because one of the things I was slightly mystified by as I'm listening to the debate last night is I'm thinking, okay, Trump needs suburban women. We know he needs suburban women. Not just the pollsters and the pundits say that. Trump pretty much has said as much himself. And yet, with all of those antics and the interrupting and the vulgarity and all of this stuff, 
the one thing I know about suburban women, you know, I was raised in the suburbs like you. One thing women don't like is to be interrupted, right? So he's turning them off, you know, every time he opens his mouth and yet he yeah. chooses to do it. I watched with a suburban woman last night and- um, <laughs> uh, I bet she loved it. <laughs> and she does not feel better about Donald Trump than she did before. <laughs> I will tell you that right now. There was a moment in the debate, and I know you commented on it last night, and maybe this was the worst moment in the debate. I don't know. When Donald Trump was asked about a white supremacist group known as the Proud Boys, and he, he gave kind of a bizarre response. Well, would you like me to condemn the Proud Boys? Right Proud Boys, boys stand back and stand by. And there were reports that people who were members of that group were overjoyed by that acknowledgement. What was your reaction to that? I, I it mean, it's, it speaks for itself. I mean, it's breathtaking. It's Charlottesville all over again. You know, I mean, this is not somebody who telegraphs what he wants to do. It's not, you know, it's not a dog whistle. It's a foghorn. It was in, th in this case, it was literally a call to arms uh, to people to go into polling sites, disrupt the elections any which way they can. I mean, I, you know, Trump, Trump has laid out what his strategy is. He wants to disrupt the elections any way he can. You know, sort of a, a think of it as like a, a 90 day version of what we saw last night. Disrupt the proceedings if you think you can't win. Uh, he wants to throw so much doubt and sort of fury and frenzy into the voting process that what we'll end up with is a count that, un under this scenario, would have to either be given to the Supreme Court to figure it out the way they did in 2000 to make some legalistic rulings that would essentially determine the outcome of the election, if it should come down to that or have it go to the House of Representatives, in which case, you know, unknown, unbeknownst to most people, it's one vote per state, not by the size of the delegation of the state, but but just the state. So California gets the same vote as Vermont. And there you go. And, and under both scenarios, he has a much better chance of winning than what it looks like the polls are suggesting right now. And so I was, I was taken aback because, you know, you, you never dream that you're going to be part of what we've all read about in history books that, you know, this was the moment when, you know, I don't know, Weimar Germany, you know, collapsed or, you know, this was this was the moment when democracy, you know, failed and the Civil War began in the 1860s. You never think that you're going to see something like that, but it was one of those moments. And I would link it up with uh, a moment I experienced in Cleveland uh, four years ago at the Republican convention when they started chanting, lock her up, where you think to yourself, like, oh man, we just crossed a line here and I don't know that there's any going back. So the president basically signaled to a bunch of racist ruffians, stand by, I may need to activate you because there's some stuff going on out there related to this election and nobody knows exactly what he means or how far he's gonna go. That happened on national television last night. How do suburban women feel about that? I don't think they like the. <laughs> I don't think, I don't so think they like the Proud Boys. I don't think I don't they like think the so. Proud Boys. And I, and I don't. Th I don't think most people. You know, there there were a couple of broadcasters last week who were saying to their audiences, "This is that moment. This is the moment." Like everybody, you know, may have thought about in their mind at some point. Well, look, if they, you know, if I show up at the polls and there's a bunch of people with swastikas on and you know bayonets saying "Go away." We, you know, there's going to be no vote today. Most of us would understand something significant happened and that we would sort of have to do something about it. What a number of broadcasters were saying was like, this is that moment. This it, it's just that bad that we are being told that the election is going to be distorted, denied, and you've got to figure out what you're going to do about it. And I, I would I would second that thought that people should not take this for granted because just like in, you know, February and March, we were thinking, oh, there's this disease out there. It's sort of like the flu, but maybe worse. You know, I don't really need to take any steps because nobody I know has gotten sick yet. And then the next thing you know, within a matter of weeks, everybody you know it, it has to deal with this. And the entire world changes because of it, literally in this case. What about some of the things that Joe Biden was asked about? Were you surprised at all? I think some people expressed surprise and maybe they should not have that when pressed on an issue uh, with respect to the environment, uh, Joe Biden looked into the camera and said, I am not for a Green New Deal. And on a couple of occasions, th th that was one, and then there was another one, where Trump seemed to be trying to put a wedge between Biden and the, the liberal left. What did you make of that? 
Well, you know, the, the, the latter one, I think, was just kind of laughable, you know, where Trump was saying, oh, you just lost the socialist left and so forth. <laughs> right. I don't know if the socialist left is taking their cues from Donald Trump, for one thing. <laughs> um, I also think that to the extent that there's a legitimate question there, there is, you know, look, there are divisions within the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is a fractious coalition. There are a lot of different people coming from a lot of different places, even on the same issues, whether it's. Uh, you know, the environment and climate change or whether it's law enforcement and, you know, racial justice. So so, you know, that's there. And and Biden, I thought, was very forceful and very savvy to say, I'm the Democratic Party. What, whatever it is you think Democrats stand for, I'm it now. I've got that role. I've got that power. I've got that influence. You know, it, implied in that, of course, is that if you really, really, really don't like it, either don't vote or vote for Donald Trump. You know, that's what he's basically saying to those in the Democratic coalition who are going to be upset by him disavowing the Green New Deal. And, and by the way, the Green New Deal is more, more a set of concepts than an actual program. I mean, there is some legislation that's out there, but if you read the legislation, even that is, you know, 80 percent aspirational. You know, it's not like they're saying we're going to cut fuel standards by this much next year. What they're saying is we have to do away with all fossil fuels. All, you know, with all 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 immediate speed. And that's, you know, I mean, and, and, and what Biden is saying is like, well, no, that's not how we're going to do it. I've got a different path to get there, but we're not going to do it that way. And, and as as Biden pointed out last night, this was, in fact, litigated in the Democratic primary. And people had their choice of many, many left of center candidates to choose from. They had Elizabeth Warren and they had Beto O'Rourke and they, had, you know, and, and, and they chose Joe Biden. So, you know, that's that's the answer for now. And maybe it's not as far uh, it's not as aggressive on climate change as you or I would like. But, the, you know, you you support the candidate you have, not the candidate you wish you had. Right. <laughs> like Donald Rumsfeld would say. There you, you go. You go to you go to war with the army you have, not the army you wish you had. Mm -hmm. um, not to quote Donald Rumsfeld on the show. I apologize <laughs> for that to my listeners. Um, first time won't happen again. I, I want to ask one last question about this debate and then I want to talk about the future. I never understood the strategy of making it sound like Biden basically was incapable of coherent speech going into the debate, lowering expectations so much for Biden that just being able to show up and withstand attacks by Trump and completing sentences would cause him to exceed expectations and win. Do you get that? Because, you know, Trump is a lot of things, but, you know, he is smart tactically sometimes. But what was that about? Yeah, no, it totally, totally backfired. I mean, it just totally backfired. It's an easy mistake to make. The first election I ever voted in was in 1980. And I remember in the run up to it, uh, the Carter, the Jimmy Carter people, the Democrats, had said that Ronald Reagan, he's a crazy warmonger. He's just like Barry Goldwater. He's going to blow up the world. He can't be trusted with the nuclear button, on and on and on and on. And then who shows up for the one and only debate they had in 1980? It's a perfectly reasonable, you know, sharp guy who's, you know, not senile, not crazy, not bloodthirsty, not a warmonger. You know, I mean, uh, I still didn't vote for him, but 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 uh, they they but blew the expectations. Did. Yeah, well, yeah. Psh, please, he he won New York twice. <laughs> you know, I mean, he won New York State twice. So 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 uh, they they played this expectations game exactly wrong, and they they so overdid it that the minute he came in and just had you know subject verb agreement, he would have defeated expectations. <laughs> right. uh, and and the, you know the other thing is. This is a guy who has been in politics for 47 years. They try and hang that around his neck like a millstone. What I'm thinking is if you woke Mike Tyson up in the middle of the night and he was hung over or actively drunk, he'd still box pretty well <laughs> just, just from muscle memory. You know, it's like you could, you could wake up Joe Biden in the middle of the night and he would have great re debate reflexes because he's literally been doing it his entire adult life. Do you think... Um that part of the reason for Biden doing well last night was the enormous amount of performance-enhancing drugs that he must have taken. <laughs> we, I mean, we forgot really, you know, to talk about that. Well, have, have I'll tell you, you what. some of these conspiracy theories? There are people showing pictures. There's a picture that suggests he had a wire that, that was uh, coming up from his jacket, that he had an IV port in his <laughs> wrist. I mean, I, you know, what is, what is, I, oh I don't even know God. what to say about oh that. Oh my God. Well, look, he had the ultimate drug, which is ambition. You know, I mean, let's put it that way. He's, this is a guy who's, this is what he's wanted his entire life. Everything he's ever done as an adult was leading up to this moment. 
And he rose to the occasion. I mean, on some human level, you actually want to celebrate that a little bit, right? It's like, well, geez, the guy's been trying since he was 29. I was in college. I remember thinking about supporting his campaign in 1988. Uh, oh, is that right? college before he oh, dropped interesting. out. Interesting. interesting. So he's been, he's been running for president for a very, very long time. <laughs> yeah. All right, so, so what happens? So the next debate, mercifully, is not until October 15th. What's your advice to Trump, to Biden, and to the moderator, Steve Scully of C-SPAN, for that? I, I understand it's going to be a town hall format, so maybe that alleviates some of the problems we had from last night. But, I mean, is everyone going to approach this the same way, or will there be some lessons learned? I, yeah, I don't. I don't think. I don't think there are going to be any lessons learned. I don't think the. I don't think. I don't think the playing field changes that much. You know, I mean, unless the stock market crashes or booms, or unless a vaccine miraculously appears on the resolute desk in the Oval Office or something. I mean, unless something serious cha- uh, changes, their their positions are fixed, and their needs and their objectives and their tactics are not necessarily going to change. Now, what will happen in a town hall format is. There'll be antics, but there'll be different antics. And then they might be worse coming from President Trump because, as we know, the brand, the Biden brand is to connect, to empathize. And in the town hall format, just as was true for uh, for, for uh, Bill Clinton a generation ago, he's going to excel. He's going to absolutely excel. You know, I mean, he hugs people. He asks about their struggles. He t- talks about his own and on and on and on and on. And so Donald Trump is not going to just stand there and watch that happen. He's going to do some of the stuff that he did in 2016 when he was like looming behind Hillary Clinton and, you know, uh, interrupting, you know, saying wrong, wrong, threatening to have her jailed and all kinds of crazy stuff. I just think it'll be it might be a little bit more frantic, a little bit more uh, off putting, I guess, for the audience. But there's no way he's going to let that happen because he, he can't. Matt, can you imagine? I mean, we've seen him in town hall formats. Can you imagine Donald Trump? In a town hall setting, he's not at the podium, uh, you know, with, with a bunch of s- screaming fans at an airport hangar. You know, now he's there on the same level as everybody. They expect him to look you in the eye. They expect him to be somewhat truthful. You know, it's one thing to lie to a politician or to a, a camera. It's another thing to lie to a, a, a family or, a you know, somebody who's right in front of you saying well, he also has to be cordial to them. You know, it's well, one thing well, to yell yeah. at a moderator and to and to de- demean and belittle your opponent, when average American, I saw that in the last town hall, as you mentioned, an ordinary American asks Donald Trump a question that he hates and doesn't like the premise of the question. He has no choice but to be civil and cordial in response. Right, right. Well, this is true. Even as he, you know, as quickly as possible, will pivot away and talk about himself or, you know, talk about those, you know, those mystical, a lot of people out there say Trump did the best, you know, or this kind of thing. And and, and it's, it's going to provide another opportunity for Biden to make inroads. You know, the, the weird thing in all of this stuff, uh, Preet, is that the incumbent president of the United States has to run like a challenger. He's behind in all of the polls, including in many of the key swing states. Every which way you look at this by any kind of objective measure, he either isn't making progress or is falling behind. So he's got to do something. He's got to be the moving party. And in a town hall format to which he is spectacularly not suited for reasons we just discussed, it's going to be really, really hard to change the narrative. Do you think that the substantive format of debates needs to change? Um, is it is it really possible to cover six, seven, eight different issues and topics in the space of 90 minutes? Some people suggested, I saw one suggestion, that given the time we're living in, there should have been an entire debate devoted just to the pandemic to get an idea of what people's plans are and what their thoughts are does that make any sense, or does that then give short shrift to to some other issues? No, no, that's exactly right. It would give short shrift to the other issues, but the theory would be that if you've got three debates, let's use the time a little bit more wisely and let's get thematic on them so that you can get more depth. And you know, as as with many things in life, you have to sacrifice uh, breadth for depth. But this is one of those cases where depth is really called for. To me, I would say one on climate change you know, one on national security and by force of of reality, one on the pandemic. And then then make the argument that we shouldn't do that. You know what I mean? Like, let's make the argument that we shouldn't do that. Or or, or you could could split the baby, right? You could say for this next 90-minute debate, at least one hour of it is going to be devoted to the pandemic. 
And then in the remaining half hour, we'll throw, you know, I don't know, throw in some other extremely important issues like, you know, housing or immigration or racial justice. Uh, I think that's probably the right way to do it. You know, I mean, if you had a cluster of foreign policy related ones for the role of the president as commander in chief, that would sort of make sense. So maybe you throw trade in with foreign policy uh, and again, confine it to uh, 60 out of 80 minutes or 60 out of 90 minutes. There, there are a lot of different ways to do it, but anything that could get us to more depth, meaning not just an exchange of insults and talking points, would be not only preferable, but I think necessary, you know, because the pandemic, I mean, the facts keep shifting, you know, like, how can you talk about it in two minutes? Uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the I mean, literally the information changes every week. Well, it also allows Donald Trump to get away with having a super shallow understanding of any issue. Very true. You know, I mean, I, mean, and, and, I can talk for two minutes about pretty much anything, pretty much anything <laughs> before people find out what an ignorant well, well, idiot I, mean, I am. No, no, not at all. I mean, but look, 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 check out something he did last night. He said he didn't say we got lots of ventilators and other protective equipment to everybody in a timely way. He says a lot of governors, including some who don't like me, say that I did it. Yeah. Right. And it's like, well, <laughs> right. yeah, they right. said that, but maybe they're lying. Maybe they're wrong. <laughs> they maybe they're trying to curry favor. Yeah, yes. maybe they're currying favor with you because of your fragile ego. And in any event, those people aren't in the room and don't matter. Tell us what you did, you know? <laughs> so we're going to see a lot more of that, unfortunately. So we're in the middle of the election. I stopped saying that the election is coming up. The election is on November 3rd. The election is now. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people have already voted many millions to come. So in the time I have left, let me ask you about how some things may impact the result of the election. So first, uh, people may not appreciate, I don't know if you wear it on your sleeve, you are a lawyer by training, not just a journalist. <laughs> um, and I say that with great respect. As a fellow lawyer, there was a nomination to the Supreme Court mm. minutes ago, but it seems like it was a long time ago. Yeah. How do, you, how do you think the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett will affect the outcome of the vote people's enthusiasm for voting either for Trump or for Biden. Do you think it makes any difference or is it a wash? Oh, no, it, it does make a difference. And I would not have anticipated this. I was a little surprised, but that's why I'm in the news business. I like being surprised. Stuff happens that you don't anticipate. I thought that it would be a classic case of all of the Republicans coming home that has sometimes divided Republican coalition often comes together around the idea of nominating conservative justices for a host of different reasons, some of them cultural. Or, but, you know, the, the reality is they know that as a, a, a party that holds unpopular positions on abortion. I mean, you know, you look at the polling. Most people want Roe versus Wade to stay as it is. Most people want some kind of gun control in place. Most people want some regulation on big industry. Most people, you know, most people want a lot of things that the Republican Party is, is opposed to. So they resort to a minority strategy. And I thought that it was all going to come together for them. And they'd all say, oh, even if we don't like Trump, we've got to have the Supreme Court in order to advance the different parts of what the Republican coalition wants. Surprisingly enough, that doesn't seem to have happened. All of the polling, you know, both before and after the nomination, suggests that Democrats are more energized by the nomination than Republicans are, meaning Democrats are, are more frightened by what this could mean than Republicans are energized by what this could mean. And, you know, you look at every piece of the Democratic coalition, if you're uh, an environmentalist, oh boy, you know, this looks like there's going to be looser regulation and industry is going to run berserk. If you're into voting rights, I mean, as an African-American, I turn into a single issue voter when it comes to voting rights. And that doesn't look too promising. On things like affirmative action, that have meant a lot to me personally, uh, that doesn't look so great. And on and on down the line, including, of course, a woman's right to choose, uh, including pre-existing conditions and defending the Affordable Care Act and, and uh, generalized health care that's affordable for most people. It, it just looks like she's going to be a disaster. And a lot of Democrats woke up to that. It's not normally a part of what holds Democrats together, but it seems to be falling in place this time. Again, I'm surprised to see it, but I've seen enough polls, including from Fox News, to suggest that that's exactly what's going to happen. And so I think it's going to be worse than a wash. I think it's going to probably help Democratic candidates. And well, certainly financially, all the money that's been pouring in. Well, that, yeah, an another indicator, right? They said uh, ActBlue broke records, not just the day of the nomination, but like the hour of the nomination's <laughs> announcement. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, they put, they put wind, you know, 
one of the one of those basic political rules is don't put wind in your opponent's sails. And, you know, frankly, I think if the moderator hadn't brought it up at the debate, I'm not sure President Trump even would have mentioned it. I don't think it's working out the way he had expected. How worried should we be and how worried are you about how the thing is going to play out on November 3rd and afterwards? As a lot of people expect, given the disparity in who's voting by mail and who's voting by uh, and who's voting in person, Democrat versus Republican, Trump may be looking like he's leading in many, many places and nationally that evening will likely declare victory. How worried should we be about, I'll use the phrase, a theft of the election? Yeah, I mean, I'm greatly worried. I am greatly, greatly worried. I mean, I, you know, what, what he's going to do, and he has signaled this and he's already started the process, he's going to convert incompetence into, in the public eye, uh, malevolence and political bias, meaning New York, which has a crappy election system and a hopelessly inept board of elections. I, I know people and like people who work there, but I've got to tell the truth as I see it. For example, it's breaking news as we're talking that 100,000 absentee ballots were sent to the wrong addresses in Brooklyn. Meaning you get an absentee ballot in the mail and it has somebody else's name on it, it has your neighbor's name on it. Completely screwed up. They, they had a no bid contract to an incompetent vendor and it happens all the time. And I, I'm sure if you keep pulling on the string, we're going to find out that that incompetent vendor probably made some political contributions. And it's just a, it's just a complete mess. But it's not intended to swing the election in one direction or another. But that is how Trump is going to portray it. And that is going to be how, and, you know, you just go state by state because every, every state has, you know, some problems with mail-in ballots. You know, it's hard to run an election, you know, when we demobilize every uh, every four years and then have to remobilize using, in many cases, volunteer labor or underpaid labor or specialty seasonal labor that only comes around on an election season. And I'm, I'm greatly worried by it, you know, because the only thing that will kill the election for sure is if people don't think it was honest, if people don't believe that it was honest. And, you know, genuine doubt in a, um, you know, we don't know what it is, but in a, a certain proportion of the electorate will mean that the election might as well not have happened if people don't believe that it was fair and don't fair, believe that it was accurate. And then, of course, it plays right into the strategy that Trump has already laid out, which is that, you know, convince a critical portion of the electorate that it wasn't a fair election and then throw it to the courts or throw it to the House of Representatives or some other forum uh, under which he's more likely to prevail. Do you expect this to be the highest turnout election in modern times? Yes. Yes. I mean, that, that's been... That's, that's that, good, right? Yeah, yeah kind of, sort of. Yeah, it's... it's <laughs> kind well, of, it, sort of. It, 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 it follows a trend. It follows a trend. You know, so, I mean, on one level, it's like, yes, it, it, was going, it was probably going to happen anyway. In the information age, it damn well ought to, since we can all get messages out at the stroke of a keyboard, you know, I mean, you know, a couple of clicks on your keyboard, you can send out a message to 100,000 people. So, so you know, that's, that's a good thing, I think. If people are coming out for the wrong reasons, armed with motives and narratives and information that is utterly false and possibly manipulated by hostile foreign interests, then that's not such a good thing. So I'm hoping for a record-breaking, honest turnout of actual citizens based on full information. <laughs> when you have to put all those caveats on it, it tells you that we've got a real problem. Can we talk about New York City yeah, sure. uh, for a moment and how the city is doing in the midst of the pandemic? There's this debate. You know, some people are, are saying, look, New York City's in trouble. A lot of people have left. There's going to be a problem with revenue because as many not as many taxes are going to be paid and lots of businesses are shuttered. And once it gets cold, it's not clear what's going to happen with the restaurant industry, which is one of the lifeblood industries of New York. And then there are others who say, and by the way, at the same time, maybe this is uh, absurd. Maybe it's not. The president uh, and his administration have designated New York to be an anarchist city, which both makes <laughs> uh, me laugh and, and gives me some sense of pride. <laughs> but then there are others who say, you know, you're being silly. New York is the most resilient place on earth. Look at what happened after 9-11. The city is great. Um, you have a wonderful piece that you wrote recently and you quote, and I had not heard this quote before, you quote John Updike, and, and I love this. You, and you say, you understand the fierce allegiance of people to New York who live in New York. And you said, the late writer John Updike was talking about folks like me when he famously noted, quote, the true New Yorker secretly believes 
that people living anywhere else have to be, in some sense, kidding. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> it's true. Is it's New York true. City is New York City in trouble, or is it not? We are in trouble. We are in trouble. We are in trouble because you know th- there are trend lines that are all going in the wrong direction. We are losing population. That's what that uh, column that you're citing, you know, was really intended to try and flag for 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 the city. We are losing population. Florida now has more people than New York. That's likely to change uh, even further in the wrong direction after this next census when the numbers are finally in. And a lot of those people are New Yorkers. And there are very tangible, logical, financial, and and other reasons for people to do exactly that. And so we have an inhospitable uh, culture. Some would say it's the business culture. Some would say it's just the overall uh, general living expenses. Some people would say it's the quality of life because the streets are always dirty. Whatever it is, the, the, the problem that we can't fix that is the one that enables us to understand that these are problems and that we have to address them and that our leadership has to address them. And what we do over and over and over again is fall into that kind of updike attitude. And again, I understand it because I share it. You know, I was born in Harlem. I, you know, I grew up in New Rochelle, came back the first minute I could when I got out of college, uh, have been here ever since. And I don't care what happens. You know, I was here for uh, 9-11. I was here for the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993. I've been here through floods and storms and, you know, been mugged on the streets, had my car broken into back in the bad old days, raising my kid here. And I literally couldn't think of a place that I would rather be. And we take that attitude and we, we misuse it. Because we say, look, everybody feels that way. Everybody wants to be in New York. And it's like, well, that's not true. I mean, you know, there was a there's a big chunk of time, centuries really, where everybody wanted to be in London, right? And then that age kind of came and went, and everybody wanted to be in New York. You know, I mean, there, there's nothing sadder to me than to go to a city that history has kind of passed by, and it's because of the choices that people made collectively and, and definitely the leadership. So I, I don't know how many more clues you have to put in front of people to, to have them understand that it's like we are bleeding people from this city. It's our greatest natural resource, but it's not infinite. It's not inexhaustible and it's not endlessly renewable. You've, you've got to make this a place where people want to be. And who's and, leaving? Well, you know, if, if you we'll, we'll have the numbers, you know, for sure by the middle of, you know, the, this decade, right? So by 2025, it should be clear who has moved out and why. But as far as we can tell, the people who are moving to other states, because it's, it's one thing if you, you know, you get relocated overseas, there's nothing you can do about that. But the people who are moving to other states, the one thing I can tell you for sure is that I looked at the numbers for Florida, you will pay a lot less in the way of taxes if you just move to Florida. You know, like here's a comparison. If you're starting a company, state business tax in New York State, 7%. State business tax in Florida, I think, is 5% or 4%. Uh, income tax in uh, in New York is, you know, whatever it is. I pay whatever they tell me to pay. In Florida, it's zero. Zero. I mean, you know, that's that's it's kind of hard to compete with zero, you know? And so, you know, in every other sphere of life, we would say, you know, whether it's a medical copay, which is just a small amount or the amount that you pay on a parking meter, we say, look, even a small amount can induce a certain kind of behavior that we want to see. And somehow when it comes to taxes, New York State's attitude is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that people can move to like, you know, four or five adjacent states. They can move, you know, to, in a heartbeat to New Jersey, which is the, the number two place that people move to. They either go to Florida or they go across the river to New Jersey. You know, it's, it's, it's a short drive. Yeah, it's a short drive. And, you know, anybody, I mean, I think the taxes have got to be really low over there because it's like, you would live in New Jersey? Hey, like, I grew like, up in Jersey. Watch it. I know, I know. Uh, so, you know but, but, you know, it's easy to get to Jersey. It's easy to get to Vermont if you're upstate. You know, it's, it's, it's easy. You can go to Canada. You know, if you're going north, why stop there? You know, I mean, so I don't get the attitude. And I'm trying to wake up some of these people and say, look, this idea, you know, the, the other thing is pre is that these politicians, I know them very, very well. I've been covering them for a long, long time. I know a lot of them personally. And it is laziness and an excuse. Just, oh, well, you got to be tough to make it in New York. I said, well, wait, is that an excuse for you not picking up the damn garbage? Like, I don't want to hear this stuff about, oh, you got to be tough. 
yeah, okay, I got to be tough. What if I don't want to be tough? What if I want to pay my taxes that you're charging me more than in most states? And I, I actually expect you to keep the streets, you know, clean and safe and have the schools actually educate my kid. Like, you know, don't tell me about, you know, grit and tough and some sort of, you know, fable about New Yorkers putting up with crappy services and liking it. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. People are voting with their feet and their wallets. Can you explain to people how unpopular a mayor Bill de Blasio is? <laughs> and, and why? They, they don't like him. They don't like it. It's what it looks like. I mean, no side. I mean, look, there's, it's no secret that there's no love lost between me and Bill de Blasio and that. I think many people know that. Well, you, look, wait, you wait, 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 wait. Let's, let's make this, let's make this crystal clear. <laughs> you investigated him and you uh, came close to deciding, in my opinion, that he maybe should have been indicted, but you chose not to. I have for no very comment good on that. I have no comment. No, record, no, no. I mean, look, you, 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 for it's, it's you, my show. Do I have to cut off your mic, <laughs> young man? You gave me that idea. It never would have occurred to me before. All we have to do is exit the Zoom. All you have to do is- It's the, easier than ever. You threaten Oh, it. hey, Errol Lewis yeah. had to go. I don't know. I don't know what happened. Yeah, he's going to go do a, a he was going to go uh, join an anti-tax protest. <laughs> <laughs> so answer my answer my question. Well, no, why people, why look, so unpopular? The, I, I, I genuinely, on one level, well, I actually I do know the answer, and I've I've intimated this to the mayor, but this is the first time I'm laying it out. So if somebody wants to explain this to the mayor, one of his aides can have him listen to this. <laughs> the, the the phenomenon that you're describing, first of all, is that the mayor is less popular than his own policies, which is the opposite of normally what you would find. Normally, what you find is that people say. I really don't like this person's policies. You know, I kind of really don't like those policies. But the politician themselves, you know what? It's a nice lady, nice guy. I, I like them. You know, they came to my church. They shake hands. I like the jokes that they tell, whatever it might be. Because most politicians are very good at being liked. For some reason, this mayor has reversed it in a way that, like, again, I've never seen. Where you ask people, you know, do you like universal pre-K? Oh, yeah, we like that. Do you like the affordable housing program? Yeah, we really like that. Do you like the ferry system? He's, you know, building out new transportation modes. Yeah, we really like that. Do you like his uh, his bike lanes? He's put in hundreds of miles of bike lanes. Yeah, yeah, we like that too. Do you like Bill de Blasio? It's like, no, we hate that guy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of a neat trick. It's right. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's too bad in a way, you know, and he himself has made jokes about it. You know, we have this thing where uh, the political reporters and the political class get together and tell jokes on each other. We call it the inner circle dinner. And he's he's and the, the mayor himself gets involved and he he gets it. He's in on the joke. He understands that. Um, on the other hand, he doesn't understand. And I, I, I've brought it up with him so many times. I get to talk with him every week. As you know, we have this segment called Mondays with the mayor. He does not value what many, many leaders take for granted, which is leading by example. So. In mid-March, on the very same day that he announced to New Yorkers all gyms oh, would yeah. have to be closed down to defeat the <laughs> pandemic, there he is at the YMCA working out. And it's and explain like, to people why it's so such a big deal. Where is the gym that he works out at? Right, right. There's 15 miles away from his taxpayer-funded mansion, Gracie Mansion. So he has a security detail drive him, I think it's actually about 11 miles, back to his home neighborhood of Park Slope so that he can work out at the YMCA. And, you know, you would think that it's like, oh, he's at the Y because he wants it to be around the people. Well, sometimes people have tried to engage him on political issues and the security detail kind of shoes them away. So it's not clear what the hell he's doing. But 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 here's the point. I've, I've said this to him. I said it in almost exactly these words. It's like, you know what, Mr. Mayor, you can go anywhere you want and work out anywhere you want. And that's fine. But don't lecture the rest of us if we're going to make similar choices about being exceptions to what everybody acknowledges would be the best rule. I think everybody acknowledges the best thing to do would be to, you know, try and be consistent. You know, if you have to shut down the gym, shut it down for everybody. Don't waste taxpayer resources going halfway across the city to the gym. But if you want to make an exception for yourself, that's cool. Just don't lecture me about when I make my exception to your rule. And he just, like, he just doesn't get it. He just doesn't get it. He, he would reap so many benefits by leading by example. You know, which is one of the things, by the way, that Governor Cuomo does. And there are a lot of people, it's interesting, it's just the obverse of, of, of the situation with de Blasio. There are a lot of people who really, really, really don't like the governor. They don't like his style. They suspect his politics. 
you know, uh, they don't even like his policies, but they like the way he leads, you know, when he was doing those briefings, when, you know, he, he said to first responders, for example, he said it publicly. I've seen him do this. I traveled with him to Puerto Rico after the, the hurricane, and I saw him say this to a bunch of first responders down there and workers. He says, I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do personally myself. And it's, it's a great thing to hear. Not enough leaders, I think, public or private sector, say that. I won't ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. We're in this together. Follow me. I'm going to take you where I'm, I myself am also willing to go. We have a mayor who never says that. And in fact, when called on it, gets dismissive and rude and <laughs> says this isn't important and this is trivia and I'm trying to run a great city and I don't know, you know, I'm not going to answer that. He, he, like he says anything a- except what people want to hear. And what people want to hear is I'm going to lead by example. I'll do better next time. So, so that, that's, that's why he gets a bad rap. He gets a bad rap. I, I wanted to ask you about a couple other things, but before I do that, I, I did want to note for the record that you were the first guest to use the word obverse. <laughs> I think that's, which is so great, because I don't, I don't really know. There's all these words that seem to mean the same thing, like reverse, inverse, obverse, Opposite, contra, right. positive, and I have never spent the time, so I am sure... <laughs> I am sure, because you are a gentleman and a scholar, you used it correctly, but but don't think you just slip in obverse and then just go on talking about the mayor. And I'm not going to both notice and make a comment on it. I got, well, I got, a, right? I got, a, I got a 15-year-old who was studying for the AP English exam, so we're all in this together, Free. We're leading that, by example. That could also be on, on I guess, on AP, on, on a math test, too, calculus. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I, I, I feel like it's I, a mathematical I, term. That's good. Anyway. That's good. Errol Lewis. Thanks for coming on the show. It was a real treat. Anytime. Thank you. My conversation with Errol Lewis continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. Try out the membership free for two weeks at cafe.com slash insider. You'll get access to the full archive of exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I co-host with Ann Milgram, the Cyberspace podcast with John Carlin, the United Security Podcast, co-hosted by Lisa Monaco and Ken Weinstein, audio essays by Ellie Honig and me, and more. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the episode this week by talking about someone that we lost in the last number of days. And that's the newspaper and publishing giant, Sir Harold Evans, who was a personal friend, and a source of journalistic passion and literary brilliance for millions of people over the course of his legendary career. In recent years, he became an unlikely supporter and mentor to me. Harry's wife, the remarkable Tina Brown, former editor of Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, and The Daily Beast, announced his passing in an email to friends and associates, along with a stanza from Shakespeare's Henry V, Act Four: A largesse universal, like the sun, his liberal eye doth give to everyone, Thawing cold fear, that mean and gentle all. Behold, as may unworthiness define, a little touch of Harry in the night. Harry, as he was known to his friends, hailed from Manchester and was raised in a working-class family. After serving in the Royal Air Force, after World War II, he became a business reporter. Back in 1967, Harry became editor of the London Sunday Times. In the early 1970s, he played an instrumental role in publicizing the thalidomide scandal. That's the German tranquilizer that was responsible for birth malformations in 10,000 babies during the prior two decades. Harry defied an order from the British High Court and pushed the story of corporate malfeasance into the public eye. He secured settlements for victims and helped shift free speech laws to make less risky the type of investigative reporting in which he engaged. In the early 1980s, after a contentious battle for control of the Times with eventual Fox News founder Rupert Murdoch, Harry and Tina headed to New York. Around the same time that Tina took over at The New Yorker, Harry became president and publisher of Random House USA, where he dramatically shook up the literary world during the 90s. During that time and since, Harry and Tina also became famous for their literary parties, which featured incredible collections of world luminaries. In 2004, Harry was knighted by Her Royal Highness, Queen Elizabeth. I got to know Harry and Tina during the time that I was United States Attorney, when Harry asked me to do an interview with him for Reuters. Then after I was fired and thought about writing a book, Harry and Tina offered me advice, welcomed me into their home, 
and in a way that remains touching to me to this day. Harry spent a lot of time asking me about the book, giving me advice about the book, and providing all sorts of counsel and support. And then when I sent them an early draft, Harry and Tina were kind enough to offer to throw me my launch book party in April 2019. Here was a person who knew every literary figure in the country, if not the world, and he took the time, in a way that meant a lot to me, to support this first-time author. Harry Evans was fiercely protective of journalistic integrity. Here, as a parting word, is Harry at the International Press Institute in 2010, in a ceremony honoring 60 heroes of the world press. And every time a journalist invents a story, fabricates a quote, elevates a personal conviction over a professional curiosity, he betrays a dozen names on the roll. Every time a news organization puts excessive profit of excellence, it betrays every name we honor. Every time a journalist maliciously sets out to destroy a reputation, he destroys, he dishonors all these heroes. And every time a journalist in a country with a free press protected my law and tradition, abuses that freedom by personal vendetta or political manipulation or betrayal of something of national importance and security, he betrays all those around the world who struggle for half the freedoms and who seek to liberate from their tyrannies by saying, look at these examples, freedom works. They're all betrayed when a journalist in a free country does not live to the highest examples. Harry was one of the best newsmen we've ever seen, and we all should heed his warnings as we continue to forge through this difficult time. Rest in peace, the legendary Sir Harold Evans. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Errol Lewis. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The senior audio producer is David Tatashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Calvin Lord, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Malley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.